join with me in prayer. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, I'm going to let you know right from the beginning that our passage this morning is likely to lead us down an unpopular path. I'm not at all excited about preaching this passage of Scripture. I've preached this topic from time to time during my 22 years of ministry. And each time I have preached it, except for the three times that I can remember preaching it here, I've had people that lined up to tell me how wrong I was and that I was wrong to even bring up the subject. As memory served me, I preached on this subject uh, here at Westminster when I preached from James chapter 4. That's going back many years. I also preached... Uh, are touched on this subject as best I can remember in Genesis 3. And then also when I preached a series on addictions, I touched on this subject as well. But no one said anything to me here at Westminster. I think that's probably because I've learned where the landmines are and have learned to avoid them. Well, what is this subject that I am teasing you with? Well, the Bible teaches that there is a pervading uh, sadness that infects humanity as a result of the fall of mankind. Uh, going back to Genesis chapter 3, most translations of Genesis 3.16 uh, say that God would multiply the woman's pains in childbirth. The word pains, however, is not in the original. Rather, it's the word for grief. Or sorrow. So the King James Version gets it right when it says, Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be for thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Without going into any detail about this passage, I want you to notice that God explicitly says, that he will multiply the woman's sorrow. And then in the next verse, in verse 17, God tells Adam, again using the King James Version, and he said unto Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shall thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So you've got sorrow mentioned twice in verse 16 as God is speaking to the woman. And God saying, I'm going to give you that sorrow. In verse 17 to Adam, God says, I'm going to give you a sorrow even as you eat of the... Um, the... the um, the fruit of the ground. Um, so I am contending that as a result of the fall, God has placed within mankind's soul a pervading sorrow that persists throughout all of life. 
And I'm not talking about clinical depression or anything of that sort. Rather, this sorrow is an ongoing frustration with life as it is presented to us. This sorrow is uh, this sorrow deep down in our soul causes us to view life with discontent and hides from us the real and lasting satisfaction that we so long for. This sorrow causes us to approach life with the leading question, if only, if only I had a hundred dollars more a month in my budget, if only I had a car that I could count on, if only I had children that obeyed me the first time I told them to do something, if only I did not have this ongoing pain, if only my wife respected me, if only my husband understood me, if only, if only, if only. We seek contentment and satisfaction as a way out of this pervading sorrow. And so we pursue, and we pursue, but we never really escape the condition of our sorrow. Solomon, in our passage, uses the pursuit of wealth as an extended illustration to help us understand how elusive True contentment and satisfaction are outside of God. And I think this will be abundantly clear when we reach the end of this passage in verses 18 through 20. But just to let you know, right from the beginning, Solomon's going to conclude, and not surprisingly, might I add, that the pursuit of wealth as the way to achieve contentment or satisfaction or joy is vanity and a striving after wind. He begins his thoughts in a rather unusual way. He says in verses 8 and 9 that you might as well not trust in your money because the government's coming for it. Uh, whether you were rich or you were poor, the governing authorities at all levels want to take some of your money as much as they can get. So look at verse 8. He says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. It appears what Solomon is saying is that the governing officials are watching out over each other instead of watching over the people that they should be serving. He seems to be saying that governing officials are more intent on creating a political machine that takes from the people to enrich themselves. Verse 9 is difficult to understand, but it seems to suggest that the king himself, instead of being a part of the solution and uh, and making sure that these Governors who are watching over themselves to enrich themselves, uh, instead of uh, correcting them, the king's the part of the problem because he wants a, sh a, a, a cut of the pie himself. It's what I think uh, verse 9 is, is uh, suggesting to us. Throughout the ages, governing officials 
and politicians struggle with the same temptations that we all have. They seek contentment and satisfaction and joy from having full bank accounts or uh, having the luxuries of life. And they seek those things on the backs of the people that they are to be serving. An important responsibility we have as citizens is to hold our uh, politicians accountable. Without the citizenry paying attention, our governing authorities will make our society more and more unjust rather than making it more just. So he says, don't trust in your wealth, the tax man cometh. In verses 10 through 12, he also said, he gives us other reasons why we should not trust in wealth. Verse 11 says, it is vain to trust in money, because if you have money, then there's going to be more people who are trying to separate you from it. There will be other family members who are hanging around wanting some money. There will be more people trying to sell you their products and services. We could go on and on. So he says, it's vain to trust in money because there's a lot of people trying to get it from you. Verse verse 11. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them and what advantage has their owner but to see them with it with his own eyes. And so the, the owner of the wealth has to sit back and watch other people take his money for whatever uh, different reasons. Also, the accumulation of wealth is vanity because it cuts in your, into your ability to get good rest. Worries come with managing wealth. And they weigh on you through the watches of the night. And also the gluttonous diet of the rich and fatty foods of the wealthy tend to give us heartburn. You know, they didn't have Tom's, they didn't have Alka-Seltzer back when Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. You know, when I've eaten something I shouldn't eat before bed and I get heartburn, I can reach over to my bedside table and pop the the Tums and take a couple of extra-strength Tums and go right back to sleep. But for those times when I've run out of Tums and I've eaten the wrong thing, you know, what can you do? You just lay there and just suffer. They didn't have Tums. Solomon says, the person who worked hard all day at manual labor is far more blessed because his rest is more restful. So verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What Solomon is driving at here is he wants to see, as he says in verse 10, to back up a couple of verses, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. 
The appetite for what money can buy is never, ever satisfied. You are foolish if you are holding out hope that accumulating more money will make you happy. And so to drive his point home, Solomon tells a story about a rich man who tried to trust in his riches. But he made an unwise business decision and he lost it all. Back then they didn't have the bankruptcy laws that we have in our country. And so this man made a, an unwise business decision. He lost everything. He had nothing to, li- li- to leave to his children. He ended up leaving this world as he came into it. He left with nothing. And on top of it all, because he didn't have any money, all the people, all his friends, all his family left him. He was all alone. He lived out his days in frustration and restless anger. Listen to verses 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. How sad. Verse 16, this is also, or this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness, and anger. The point of this story is that counting on money or trusting in the accumulation of wealth is folly. You could lose it with the stock market crash. And then what you have left, you can't take it with you. Naked you came into this world without anything in your hands. Shall you leave it? I've probably uh, quoted this quote um, previously. I heard a pastor say one time when a a rich person uh, died and somebody asked, how much did he leave? And the pastor said, he left all of it. But Solomon's larger point is that nothing in this life can, pre- can bring you true, lasting satisfaction, contentment, or joy apart from God. You know, in verses 8 through 17, he hasn't brought up the name of God at all. You know, we need to hear over and over again that toys or video games or smartphones, or clothes, or music, or homes, or automobiles, anything money can buy will never, ever be able to satisfy this longing to escape this sorrow that pervades our life as fallen creatures. You may have been disciplined. You may have been faithful to say no once. But that temptation will come back and chase you down again and again. 
throughout your life. The Scriptures speak consistently to this issue of not trusting in the accumulation of wealth. Jesus said, and you could probably quote this passage with me, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or the Apostle Paul told Timothy, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Or Hebrews 13.5, the writer of Hebrews charged his readers, he said, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you or forsake you if we're not to trust in riches and we are not to put our hope in wealth then how should we treat money and wealth how should we think about it how should we use it look again or look at verses 19 and 20 he says, I'm sorry, verses 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. You know, it sounds like Solomon is contradicting everything that he's, he, he has just said. Don't love wealth. Wealth is vanity, a striving after the wind. And yet here, he is saying, wealth is a gift that God has given us. I love the the, the uh, offertory that the, the choir sang. Um, For this simple gift, we give to you simple praise. God is saying here that wealth is a gift from God. So what he's doing in verses 18 or yeah verses 18 through 20 is he is giving us a god-centered view of money. Money, even great wealth, millions of dollars, billions of dollars if you're uh one of the billionaires uh that are that are living in the world. That money, Solomon says, is a gift from God himself. And therefore, it is a gift to be enjoyed. So what are we to do with our wealth? We're to enjoy it. We are to enjoy the fruit of our labors. That's what he tells us. Verse 19. The money you have and the life you are living is a gift from God. God has providentially chosen to bless us with the affluence of living in the United States of America. Every one of us. Even the poorest among us wake up to enjoy advantages and privileges that most of the world can only dream about. Are we to go around living in 
in guilt because of the wealth that we enjoy. No, God says it is a gift from Him. Enjoy it. The danger comes from trusting in our wealth or counting our wealth to bring us satisfaction or contentment or joy. Wealth is only a gift from God. We must never confuse the gift with the giver. We trust in the giver. We should never trust in the gift. Money is a gift from God. That means that money ultimately belongs to Him. One of the commentators I read said, you're just passing through this life. Hang on lightly to money and to wealth. Don't hope in those those things. Hope in God. You belong to Him. Jesus and Paul and the author of Hebrews did not just tell us to keep ourselves from loving money and trusting in money. Rather, each of them told us to entrust ourselves and our wealth to God because He loves us so much. Again, listen to what Paul told Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present, present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Or again, Hebrews 13.5, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We should entrust ourselves to God because He loves us so much. I believe that we trust in money because we struggle to believe that God will indeed bless us with what we need. We want to be in control of our money because we want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in control of our money because we really don't trust God to give us what we really need in life. And so we hoard money. We hang on to wealth and money too tightly. We struggle to use it for the kingdom of God because we want to make sure that we have enough to, to use on ourselves. We must believe that God truly loves us and cares for our needs. How you treat your money, how you use your money, is a barometer for your trust in God. Verse 20 is our concluding verse, and it is profound. So look with me at verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. How do we escape the sorrow that pervades our lives? Enjoy God. Be preoccupied with loving and serving God and the sorrow that always pursues us when we are pursuing satisfaction and contentment and joy, that sorrow will get lost in our joy in the Lord. The way to true joy in life is for God to be your joy. Look, at the, the, look to the cross of Jesus Christ 
where He poured out His love and poured out His life for us. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross on our behalf. He loves you. He went to the cross for you. He is committed to you. Wherever you are in your life and in your circumstances, you can trust in Him. Love Him. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. I have two children in college right now and another who's already graduated. I have had to listen to hours of indecision. What should I do in life? What should be my major? What if I choose the wrong path? Solomon's answer to those questions cuts right through all the indecision. He simply says it doesn't matter what you do as long as you are doing it for the Lord. You hear me, young people? As you're trying to mark out the paths that will that you will follow the rest of your life, doesn't matter what you do as long as you are doing it for the Lord. Solomon would say, if you're not doing it for the Lord, it's all vanity and striving after the wind anyway. Do what you want to do. Just make sure that you are enjoying God while you do it. When the God who loves you is your preoccupation, he's telling us in verse 20, then satisfaction and contentment and joy in life will find you without you even looking for it. So look to the Lord as we pray together. Almighty God, I do ask that you would help us to find true satisfaction and contentment and joy in this life by finding it in You alone. Lord, You've told us that You'll give us everything we need for life and godliness if we put You and Your kingdom first. So I pray You would help us not to hang on to wealth because we are preoccupied hanging on to You and enjoying You because You love us so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.